I call it intellectual honesty. And that really means the ability to face up to the world the way that it really is and not the way you wish it was. Of course, that's something also about our own mental health when we do that, right? Facing up to the world, what's really going on today? Let's make whatever pivots and adjustments we need. I think intellectual honesty becomes a real differentiator. When you don't have that, you don't actually want to know or understand how the world's changing around you. And the world's going to change whether you like it or not. Hi there, this is David Knorr. Welcome to the third season of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm so excited after years of research and interviews and due diligence on this topic to finally be able to publish Curvebenders this year. It'll be my 11th book as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. Curvebenders, in essence, are your strategic relationships that enable your non-linear growth in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that we believe will dramatically impact the future of how you'll work, how you'll live, how you'll play, and how you'll give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact? In each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I've invited to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, and most importantly, what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. I call those relationships your curve benders. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Noor here. I want to let you know that we've launched a brand new website, including a brand new blog, a resource section with links to all the previous podcast episodes, Inc. and Forbes articles, and a new intimate community called the Noor Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and nonlinear growth. This is also where you'll find the show notes, articles, references to position papers by my podcast guests. For example, I hosted David Burkus on a live stream, and we've put a link to that video there. So join us at norgroup.com slash forum. That's N-O-U-R group, norgroup.com slash forum. Welcome to another episode of the Curvebenders Podcast. My name is David Knorr. I'm your host, and I'm delighted to be joined by Sidney Finkelstein, Stephen Roth Professor of Management at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Sidney, welcome. Thank you, David. Great to be talking to you. Great to have you. Sidney, for those who may not know as much about you or your background, can you briefly talk about where you've been, what you've done, and, and your current role? Absolutely. So, I like to always uh, start by uh, by saying I'm Canadian by birth and uh, still loyal to Canada, especially their hockey teams. But I've lived in the U.S. for the last uh, three plus decades and have my PhD from Columbia University. And I'm at Dartmouth College and the business school where I'm one of the senior professors. My specialization is strategy and leadership. I've written a bunch of books on those topics and I work with different people around the world to try to help them become better leaders. That sounds great. And I'm looking forward to you know, learning more and talking more about your book, Super Bosses. Before we start, we're a year into this global pandemic. Talk about some trends you've observed that have had a real impact on the organizations that you know well. 
So, you know, everyone talks about remote work and is it here to stay? And, and that's the tip of the iceberg. I was talking to, actually, I've heard this term from several different senior executives that I've talked to, you know, business as usual, right? BAU is all they say. And what they say is BAU is dead. It's over. Now, we'll see whether that's true a year or two. If we talk in, you know, in 18 months, we'll find out just whether it's dead or not, because you know how the pressure of inertia and going back to old ways of doing things is always there. But I'm really hearing and, and seeing actions from companies. There's one CEO of a beer company that I was talking to not that long ago, and, and he said that they had a three-year plan for new product introductions, new marketing and branding efforts. And in the space of three months, they did 90% of that effort because you're in the beer business, you're not selling nearly as much beer as you did before. So you got to survive and you want to kind of get a head start on what's going to happen next. So I do think that we are going to see that. I think leading companies are going to, are already throwing out the old rule book. And I know how hard it is to stick with it when things get back to some type of quote unquote normality. And that will be the real test. So I love that notion that business as usual is dead and we've got to think and lead differently. How do you believe these trends will manifest in the way leaders will lead differently? What do you believe the after COVID world looks like? So today, everyone or almost everyone has had to work in some type of remote environment. Whether you're remote or not, you have teams that and team members that are all over the place. The fact that people work in virtual environments not exactly new. It's been going on for you know certainly a decade, if not longer. But it's never been to this extent. And so knowing how to use that time when you interact with people, the power of the face to face and what you can do. It's something I talked about in in Superbosses, where one of the key themes is one on one learning. Where who do you learn the most from? You learn the most from your boss. At least you have the potential to learn the most from your boss. And so I've been advocating, you know, throw away those PowerPoint slides. Don't fill up the time with information downloads that could be done in other ways. You want to be able to interact in a way that you you're you're, you're connecting on a more emotional, human level, and getting stuff done, having a real debate, a real discussion. So I think that that's a skill set. It's always been around. I think it's going to be even more. I think there's no question it's going to be even more important. And I think the other thing is people talk about, and I talk about empathy quite a bit. And I, I do think it's one of the most important leadership skills around. But people have been going through a lot, and especially women who generally have the primary uh, responsibility for kids in the household, even even today, even in 2021. And that has been publicized quite, there have been a lot of articles about women almost falling further behind because it's uh, a lot of the, the brunt of of dealing with the world we're in has fallen to, to them. So I think empathy, empathy translates into really, really investing the time to understand your people and what it is that they're dealing with on a personal level, on an emotional level. And that's a place not every manager wants to go. And you have to kind of walk a careful line because, you know, you can't go too far. You can't be too intrusive because that's a very bad thing to do for all sorts of reasons. So it's actually going to up the game on, on a leader's ability to, to both demonstrate empathy, but also respect boundaries. You and I talk about empathy a great deal. We hear about it. Do you believe managers and leaders are sufficiently trained? Or is that that skill, that knowledge, that behavior sufficiently developed in them to do this successfully? I would say that up until the last five years, the word empathy was barely heard in a business school, was barely heard, uh, was probably not heard at all in a boardroom, uh, because it has certain connotations, and they're old connotations about being soft. But I think we know that empathy is actually about getting things done, about being a human, about understanding customers, actually, you could put it in that direction. Satya Nadella, 
the CEO at Microsoft, who's just been really one of the superstar CEOs in global business over the last five years, he talks a lot about empathy and he talks about it in the context, not just a personal level as we're talking about, but how are you going to understand your customers? How do you really know what the users of your products and services are doing? You have to put yourself in their, in their shoes to truly understand that. That, by the way, David, is what design thinking is really all about, right? And so that's empathy. That's the skill set. So the training has not been there. I think there's a lot of talk about it now. There's a lot more recognition of it. But I would say we have a long, long way to go before the average manager, leader, executive really embraces that notion and uses it in a positive. One of the fascinating notes that I took in our last conversation was you also believe status quo is riskier than ever. Talk a little about that. Listen, I've been in this job for a whole bunch of years and my business is doing well. Why should I do anything differently? Well, just look at the history of business and you got the answer, right? When I wrote almost 20 years ago that the book, my book, Why Smart Executives Fail came out, and that was the biggest study at that time and I think still is of what goes wrong in companies that have been going right. And the core problems always get back to people and how people behave. And when things are not going right, you stick your head in the sand. One of the things I learned in that research is that one of the earliest warning signs for failure is success. And, you know, now that I say it, people are listening, say, yeah, you know, that that makes sense. Doesn't just make sense. There's empirical data behind that. There's a lot of data behind that. So status quo is actually the highest risk thing you can do because the pace of, of change People have been talking about that forever, right? It's definitely the case that uh, that things have been, never mind just COVID, but just in general with technology, things have been changing and changing at a tremendous pace. The level of global competition, the, the rise of so many Chinese and Korean companies, and actually Scandinavian companies as well, has been pretty impressive. And so where is your competition coming from? And how do you actually insulate yourself from them? And the answer is you cannot. It's the wrong question to ask. I don't believe in insulation. I believe in attack. (laughs) And and that requires you to face up to the reality of the world you're in. You also wrote, talking about behaviors, bad habits of unsuccessful people. Were there some of those habits that have particularly heightened themselves through this pandemic that you've observed? Yeah, I think that's true. There's probably several things, but maybe the biggest one, and it's a differentiator between more successful leaders that I work with and, and others. I call it intellectual honesty. And that really means the ability to face up to the world the way that it really is and not the way you wish it was. Of course, that's something also about our own mental health when we do that, right? Facing up to the world, what's really going on today? Let's make whatever pivots and adjustments we need. Now, that I, I use the word pivot on purpose because it's become kind of a cliche in the startup world, right? But it does mean something. You know, funny thing about cliches is that they typically mean something before they become cliched. And a pivot means that you just get up and you you turn, you make a dramatic change to what you're doing. And startups do that all the time because they're trying to find a place where they can survive. Big companies are really lousy at that, right? And that's kind of, kind of gets back to your question about status quo and business as usual and how they focus on it and how that's difficult to break uh, to break through. I think intellectual honesty becomes a real differentiator. When you don't have that, you don't actually want to know or understand how the world's changing around you. And the world's going to change whether you like it or not. And you know, if I could say, say one other thing about it, it's very interesting. Sometimes people say, well, yeah, but what about Steve Jobs? And I love that question, right? Because first of all, Steve Jobs is the answer to all sorts of interesting questions about leadership. But the most interesting question is, who is the leader that is the most difficult to actually replicate and be successful if you try to do what he does? The answer is Steve Jobs. 
Steve Jobs is a once in a multi generation uh, leader. He talked about what, what was it called? His reality. Do you remember that term he had? Essentially, he was creating the reality around him. So sometimes people, well, he did it. Yeah, he did it. That doesn't mean that you could do it. Intellectual honesty requires you to recognize there's a world out there and you got to deal with it and you can't create your own alternative reality. It doesn't work that way. What does that look like for a PL leader? How do they become more intellectually honest about kind of where they are and what's around them? And particularly, Sydney, in a mature company, in a mature industry that's got so many guardrails and Gary Hamill's book recently with Humanocracy. And I mean, the level of bureaucracy in some of these places has just gone out of control. Yeah, it has. But I still think that a PL executive can, general manager could do a lot, could do a lot. And it starts with casting a wide net data. In the old days, people used to wor- use the word environmental scanning, which is, you know, you use that word and you think the environment is, you know, we're talking about climate change. But in fact, they were not talking about it. What they're talking about is what we talk about now in a little bit different ways, which is talking to your stakeholders uh, very broadly and trying to understand what's going on. And then really engaging in, for example, I've used a technique with teams or a process with teams that I call, uh, actually several, but one of them that I'm thinking of is the assumption analysis. And when you're planning to make a decision or go in a particular strategic direction or whatever it is, if it's important enough, you know, you've done the analysis, you've thought about it, you've debated, at least to some extent, and then you have, and then you say, okay, let's do that. And I always say, well, let's get back, let's get down to kind of first principles. What are the underlying assumptions behind what it is you want to do? So you want to, uh, you know, you want to close this operation, consolidate and go here. But what's, what's the assumption, what are the assumptions you're making? One little technique or trick that I've used is, you know, we have this discussion about, about strategy and I say, okay, everyone take a sheet of paper and write down the three most important central assumptions to what we're all discussing. And everybody does it separately. And then they compare notes and you know what I'm going to say, right? Assumptions are different. They're not the same. And that is a, to me, that's a disaster because those people in the room are the ones responsible for executing on that strategy. And if they think it's, it's for very different underlying reasons, how are they ever going to do that in an integrated, cohesive way? So there are a bunch of techniques or, or management approaches that you can, that PL executives could do, but they boil down to trying to understand reality by collecting data and then forcing yourself to challenge yourself and your team with respect to assumptions. You and I had this conversation that I, I think I learn as much, if not more, from my own books after they're published because people will read them and have their own examples and perspectives and they push back on some of the ideas. Are there some that either reinforced or refuted some of your key ideas in Superboss that you've thought more about more recently? So there's two answers to give you. One is getting the super bosses. When I wrote Why Smart Executives Fail, and that was a book obviously about failure, but why previously very successful people fell apart and included companies like Enron and WorldCom, but also a lot of no ethical or illegal activity, just bad management. And as I was going around the world talking about that, the number one question that kept coming up was, okay, I understand what can go wrong. I understand the underlying drivers for that, but what can I do to survive and thrive into the long term? How do you become a superstar company? And I realized that I hadn't addressed that as closely as I thought I had. And, and you know, make a long story short, that's one of the key factors that led me to super bosses in the first place, because super bosses is, is based on a premise that says success and not just success, but tremendous success for any organization depends on your ability to generate and regenerate talent on a continual basis. And that's what I set out to study and, and analyze. Now to super bosses, once the book 
comes out and you start talking to people and you interact with people. One thing I learned is so many people don't actually have teams that they're working under, that they're working for, that they're the boss of. They don't have teams that they're the boss of. And these are people with big jobs as well. Because mm-hmm. there's cross-functional or ad hoc teams, you know, complex global companies are all, all matrixed anyways. And so a lot of the time that you spend at work, is not necessarily in a classic kind of hierarchical relationship. It's still more common than anything else, but it doesn't cover everything else. It doesn't cover every situation by a long shot. And so those people were asking me, does this apply to us? I mean, how would we adjust what you're advocating for a leader to work with his or her team when I don't have that formal authority over people that are around me? And the answer is uh, every single thing actually applies. You just got to work at it a little bit differently. You got to be a little bit more subtle. And this is where, you know, David, you brought up empathy. This is where empathy really comes in. And this is where these people use the term soft skill. And you and I both know it's not a soft skill. It's the hardest of all skills, right? It's about interpersonal relationships, about interacting, it's about understanding people. It's about self-awareness. These are the things that are required, even more so uh, when you're working in in kind of a cross-functional team or you're an individual contributor and not necessarily the leader of a team. You brought up talent and retalent. One of the conversations I'm having with a number of leaders is around this idea of labor flex through this pandemic. So we hired Susan to lead up, you know, our events. Well, we're not having any events, but I like Susan. Let's reskill, upskill, and redeploy Susan into mm-hmm. other roles. Yeah. Sydney, uh, how have you found, or what's your perspective on talent during this pandemic? Has it become more difficult to find great people? Has it become easier because we're no longer geographic bound and anybody can do you know the role virtually and what happens to talent when these hundred million people that have been part of this global experiment to work from home are suddenly asked to come back into an office yeah well i think the first thing to say is it's all hands on deck for company after company that i've talked to and doesn't matter what your job was before your job has changed. And many companies, including some pretty large companies, the job is called survival. And so I don't care what you were doing. There won't be a job and there won't be a company unless we, we get our, we work our way through that. And that requires creativity and innovation. You got to come up with new ways of doing things as well. So that's a really interesting phenomenon. People that were hired for a certain job and have talent, a certain job now have to do something else, right? I think that that could be one of the positive kind of talent management changes that might come out of this. Because I think, I don't know whether this will be generally true, but I think for a lot of people, they're going to really enjoy that because you're able to do something a little bit different. It takes you out of your comfort zone. You don't have that deep expertise. You don't have a degree that says, you know, you're an expert in this. And so that scares a lot of people. But I found that the best people want to be challenged in that way. And, you know, the idea of getting out of your comfort zone is not a new idea, but this has been forced on people. And so I think that in some ways, some of the best talent in a company are self-identifying right now. They're going through, and this is still going on, so it's not going to end the second that we get a vaccine in everybody's, in everybody's arm. It's, gonna, it's still going on. People are, in a sense, right now, interviewing for their post-pandemic jobs, whether they know it or not. And I think that's really kind of an interesting thing to think about. Love that idea of are you, how are you showing up? And are you taking initiative and how autonomously can you in fact work? And are you focused on outcome, not just output? I want to have you and ask you to look a little closer to home. I've visited Dartmouth, you know, Tuck is a beautiful school, you know, just a beautiful area and obviously a great reputation. You also are aware of Scott Galloway 
really challenging our educational systems. And in this changing market dynamic, Sydney, how do business schools need to evolve to really prepare, and I hate to call them kids, but they're kids, they're like this next generation of leaders to be significantly more relevant and more capable as they graduate with a very prestigious degree? This is a conversation that we could spend a lot of time on, David. First of all, Scott's outreach and his advocacy is fantastic because here's a guy, and I think he's at NYU, so he's an insider of sorts. He's calling the entire industry out, and we need more people that this is about intellectual honesty, right? And there's an example. And there's a lot to say. So, first, the best business schools, and we're going to count Tuck in that group to be sure, do something kind of magical uh, when people are together. And that's one of the reasons why this past year has been so challenging. And I call it the cohort. And what it means is that when you bring together a group of people that are very talented, deep capability, a lot of smarts, and you, you put them together and you kind of create this melange, this mix, something special happens. It's almost like a chemical. It's like, like we are baking a cake and you, you have the right ingredients. You put it in, you put it in the oven and look what comes out an hour later. It's like fantastic. And you didn't do anything during that one hour, right? All you have to do is mix the ingredients together. Now, I like to think us business school professors do a little bit during the time that people are there with us, but that cohort effect is a very big factor. And that means that there's probably a two-tier system in two-tier system in place where the top schools that are able to get the top talent are going to be able to continue doing what they've been doing in the past. And a huge number of, of schools, including a lot of very, very good schools, are going to struggle. And they already are struggling. And so we're going to see that trend of a two-tier education system accelerate. But even for the top schools, there is definitely room for improvement. I was just at a, I'm on a committee that's talking about how to develop our curriculum in the light of, of COVID and, uh, and then the process of education. And I brought up the analogy of the music business and uh, the way music has changed, right? Because now you stream your music. You don't buy an, you don't buy an album or a CD or an LP, or any of these other crazy old words, you download, uh, or you don't even download, you just stream it from Spotify or, or Apple or somebody like that. And so if you're a creator of, of music, you get this kind of tiny, tiny royalty. Where do you make your money? In live shows. Now, again, we're in a place where there's no live shows, but that's where you may, and, and why do people go and spend, you know, what do you spend for a ticket? $100, $200, a lot. Why do you yeah. do that? Because you're getting something you cannot possibly get anywhere else under any form. And that's this kind of experiential, community, powerful, one time. And, it, and it's only one time. Even if you watched on TV a, a, t a recording of a concert, it's not the same as actually being there. And I think business school, all education, but business school in particular, has to try to do that a little bit more. And so when you're in the, in the classroom, you have to create that experiential, that moment. And you're not doing it by you know putting on a show. It's not about that. But it is about taking advantage of the fact that you have 10, 20, 60, 80 people in the room at the same time. And you're adding something that they could not possibly get anywhere else. Love that analogy of creating a deep, immersive, experiential learning opportunity for, for that next generation of talent. Switch gears with me. And let's, I, I want Sydney's crystal ball. Management and leadership at its best in the next decade. Give me three attributes that, again, exceptional leaders are taking away from this pandemic and are committing to doing thinking differently. Okay. Not in any particular order because there's more than three things that are popping in my head, including a couple of things we've talked about uh, already. You know, like intellectual honesty is always on my short list of important leadership uh, skills. But 
I would say a much deeper awareness of your personal and I'll say personal ecosystem. An ecosystem are all the players that, that are around you. Usually that's a term used for companies. When you think about your suppliers and your, your customers and component manufacturers and things like that. But the personal ecosystem is your, your family, it's your friends, it's your coworkers, it's your team members, it's your boss. And it's also all the constituencies that, that impact your organization, your position in that organization. I haven't done this, but I could easily see in my coaching work, working with a, a leader to define what their ecosystem is today and what it should be tomorrow to put them in the best position to have the impact that they want. And so just this first comment in response to your question has two parts. One is ecosystem and thinking about your job a little bit differently. But second, I use the word impact. And I think that that's the metric that we need to look at and that people are going to look at more and more. Impact is a, a softer term, again, in a sense, but you, then you translate. Of course, you can have your KPIs for whatever it is, your key performance indicators for whatever your job is. But then, you know, what is your impact on people? What is your impact on customers, on every key stakeholder? So I'd say, number one, ecosystem and defining that ecosystem. I think there's greater awareness of that now, but that's definitely going to become a bigger and bigger part of what makes for a great leader. I'd say second, self-awareness, knowing who you are and how you think. And we've, all of us have been forced to really think about our worlds in sometimes very scary ways over the last uh, year and change, right? And the more we know about ourselves, the more we think about ourselves, the more we understand who we are and how we think, the better off we, we are, including knowing our weaknesses. And, and self-awareness comes about through a lot of ways, but I'd say the two primary ways are reflection, taking some time for reflection. That's another one of those things people hear and they say, oh yeah, fine. But reflection is not, is the, if you could find something that had a return on investment anywhere close to what reflection does for you, you would invest in it. You would jump all over it. And that's what reflection does. And then feedback, of course, the more feedback you get, the, the better. So I'd say, I'd say self-awareness would be a second, really a critical leadership characteristic. And then third, taking maybe a page out of Superbosses, when we think about our jobs, are we thinking about how we help other people get better? Not necessarily because we want them to do so well. Hopefully we do, but it's not even required. It's because the stronger and the better the people are around you, whether you are a leader of that team or to our earlier discussion about ad hoc teams or in, in matrix organizations, the better the people are around you, the better you're going to be. How could that not be, right? And so I think that is going to become more and more uh, important. So those are my three. Love those, the personal ecosystem, the self-awareness, and really bolstering, elevating success of others. I can't think of a single leader that I work with that could go wrong with those. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Curvebenders, the next book is all about the relationships that have a profound impact on not just what we accomplish, but also who we become. Sydney, in thinking about your own personal journey, are there one or two people who've had a profound impact in shaping you? quite a few, actually. I've been fortunate that way. And I always, that's a central theme of super bosses, you know, these people that you work for at some point in time and what impact they had. But there are lots, but I'll give you maybe one from earlier years and maybe one more business-like. When I was in ninth grade, you know, high school, I was just a typical kid hanging out, doing whatever I'm doing. I did okay in school, but not not what you think would be future professor material, let's just say. And I was, I had an assignment in an English class to write a paper, not a paper, it was a, write a story, a fiction. And it was, you know, substantial, I don't know, it was four or five pages, which is a lot in ninth grade. And we used to, giving away my age a little, we didn't type, we didn't put this into the word processor, right? This is handwritten. And I wrote it and you know, I didn't think much about that. And then I handed it in and when I got it back, 
there's some marks, you know, some red marks here and there. But the primary thing on that paper was from my, my teacher, Mr. Narek, who said, Sydney, you know, you have a talent in writing and you should think about doing it. And of course, that was like a total surprise. I had no clue, no idea at all about any of that. And that made a big impact because, you know, what do I do? I, I write, I've written over 25 books. I don't, I'm not writing fiction, at least yet, but <laughs> I'm still, I'm writing and I've written in my kind of private life, a lot of different things as well. So that's had a big impact, I think, on me. And, and you know, when people do that, they give you a lot of confidence too. Let's not forget that. And then the second person was uh, when I was in graduate school, my advisor, Don Hambrick, who's kind of legendary in the field. He and I worked together very closely and we worked for years afterwards as well. And uh, he's pretty much the best there is. <laughs> and so I, in Superboss, I talk about master-apprentice relationships. And that's what I had. I was, uh, I was lucky. He was truly a master and I was the apprentice and I just soaked up everything from him. And there's dozens of examples of very specific things I learned from him, techniques, ways of thinking, ways of doing things that have paid off, still pay off even decades later. For our audience, if you joined us late, you've been listening to Sidney Finkelstein, the Ro Stephen Roth Professor of Management at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Uh, Sydney, what's the best way for our audience to get in touch or learn more about you? So you could always find me. I don't play hard to get on Google. You could always find me. But my most current work, I think most interesting place to look would be the Sidcast, my podcast, which comes out every week. And that's where I have a conversation, like we're having a conversation, although sometimes it's in business, sometimes it's in entertainment and politics and other areas, and it gives me a chance to kind of riff on various things I'm thinking about with respect to leadership with a guest. And then, you know, my Dartmouth website has lots of information about my books, things that you can download, things that I've done and things that I'm doing. It was great to have you on the Curvebenders podcast. Thank you so much, David. Really liked it. By the way, three quick points, new season and a renewed commitment to our digital footprint, blog, newsletter, social media. We turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can find those in our completely revamped new blog forthcoming at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, we're completely revamping our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version. Check it out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. Lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So whether it's a Twitter chat with a guest or live streaming through our Facebook and YouTube channels, or even more recently, a Clubhouse audio conversation, check out our various social media channels with the hashtag Curvebenders for the latest update. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Sidney Finkelstein of the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Three comments Sidney made during our interview really resonated with me. One is, I actually really do believe it is the end of business as usual. I keep sharing with executives and others my perspective that I don't believe there's any going back. Uh, you know, people keep talking about, you know, can't wait to get back to normal. There's only going forward. Uh, and ideas like, you know, this pandemic, I think is going to be with us for a while. Working from anywhere is going to be with us for a while. People uncomfortable about, you know, social gatherings and traveling, uh, I think is going to be with masks, uh, social distancing, I think is going to be with us for a while. So the sooner you learn how to 
not just adapt to survive, but really accelerate your growth, post-pandemic growth. Uh, I think the easier life's going to be and the more you're going to be anticipating kind of the next evolution of your personal and professional growth as well. So that's one. Two, obviously the title of this episode, Intellectual Honesty, change is happening, change is going to keep happening to us. Are you curious enough to look beyond what's happening now to that evolution and proactively think about it, plan for it? None of us can predict it. Every one of us can plan for it. That's a big part of the Curvebender's book and the ideas that I'm coaching and consulting and speaking about right now. Number three, status quo is riskier than ever. So forget competitors you think you know. There are competitors you don't know. And again, what I'm observing in the market, very consistent with Sidney's comments and his book and you know, Super Bosses, is competition all around you. Again, from a lot of earlier stage companies or a divestiture of other companies that are doing some of this work internally that you're just not aware of, and they don't have your organization's baggage, and they don't have uh, your you know perhaps legacy, but you know what? They can hit the ground running, and they can grab market share with enormous amount of agility, and business model innovation matters more than ever before. So a couple of quick reminders. Number one, I'll turn the show notes from these episodes into a blog post. So check them out at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, my best thinking, I'm actually posting. I'm there every day in our private online community called the Nor Forum. It's free. So check it out when you get a chance at norgroup, N-O-U-R group.com slash forum. Number three, I'm excited. We have some fabulous guests joining us in the next several weeks, including Julian Birkinshaw of the London Business School, Damon Griggs, one of my favorite CEOs at Dovell Technologies. Colonel Diane Ryan is the Associate Dean of Tisch College at Tufts University, and she is a former leadership uh, deputy director at West Point. Michael Watkins, Jeff Parker, Mandeep Rai, Kate O'Neill, just to name a few. Again, fabulous people, great insights. So make sure you keep up with hashtag Curvebenders Podcast for the latest updates. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress.